So we are in the book of Exodus this morning. We're in Parshat Bo, and we are, as always, in the in this synagogue reading on the triennial cycle. We are this year in the third year of the triennial cycle, which means we're beginning at chapter twelve of the book of Exodus, and we're going to begin at verse twenty nine. There's a lot going on in this week's Parsha. So we are in the story, of course, of the Makot, of the, of the catastrophes. And we are coming to the end of that story. We are coming to the uh, part of the 10th plague. So somebody want to read at verse 29. Eitz Chaim 387 and the women's commentary 367. In the middle of the night, Adonai struck down all the male firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Up, depart from among my people, you and the Israelites with you. Go, worship Adonai as you said. Take also your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone, and may you bring a blessing upon me also. So we are... We are at the end of Egypt's year of suffering with these calamities that have befallen Egypt. And uh, all the stops are pulled out at the 10th plague. There's no way at all for us to have this be in any way for us as progressive Jews okay. It's just not going to be okay. There's, there's nothing that, that makes slaying of children or innocents okay. It is our mythic story. Um, and to uh, put it in its context, in the ancient Near East, the firstborn were considered, um, I don't want to use the word sacred, it was different than just sacred. They, they, they were, by their own right, as firstborn, special. Right? There was something already you know, sacred about them in that kind of you know, taboo kind of powerful way because they were the firstborn. Male. Fruit. But not, not female child. Male. Right. Firstborn. So they were sacralized because they were firstborn. The Israelite response, that's the the culture that the Israelite culture is coming out of and responding to and reconstructing. So what is their reconstruction of that idea? The firstborn are sacred because, there's a because, not because they're firstborn. The firstborn are sacred because they were spared this. So on the one hand, this demonstrates that the firstborn of Egypt are not, in fact, in any way special or protected, right? Because Yudhe Vafe controls things, n- not the fact that somebody happens to be firstborn, right? So, so it's in that context that Yudhe Vafe is made to be 
the power that makes for these things, not the accident of one's birth. Does that make sense? There's a reason this is chosen. There's a reason the firstborn is chosen as a target. Right? So it's to prove again Yudhe Vafe is the one in control, not the fact that one got born first. And um, and that for the Israelites, their firstborn also will be sacralized because it belongs to me, says God. I demand it. Which is very different from the pagan understanding of the firstborn being somehow sacred. So not that it not that it makes us okay with it. I'm just trying to put it in its own context. So if we imagine at least our mythic setting of this event, it is, uh, it was at twilight, right? What happened at twilight? The Israelites slaughtered the lamb, right? Every Israelite household slaughtered a lamb. This is what's in the imagination of the people hearing and creating this story. The, um, the terrifying sound of that many lambs being slaughtered at the same time. That's what happens at twilight. Then at dark time, what happens? There's the screaming and wailing in every Egyptian home, right? When, when their firstborn is... Okay, we don't want to know who... <laughs> That ring means is calling you. No, no. I'm so the, sick of getting $63 tickets that I set my timer oh. for my meter. To bark at you to when... To bark when I have to go and feed my meter. Understood. So we Bob, but we, and I was concerned. <laughs> so I left early. All right. So... Uh, so now Pharaoh has had it, right? So that does it. Like the, this eerie slaughtering of the lambs on top of that, the firstborn of Egypt. Now there was no house in the, that wasn't wailing in grief. He summons Aaron and Moses in the middle of the night and says, get out. Take your Israelites and get out. And take everything with you. What's fascinating is what is his final word? Isn't that curious? And give me a blessing also. So maybe it's not enough that you're gone. Maybe you need to intercede some more with a protective blessing. Pharaoh's scared, okay? It's interesting that he's still commanding, though, right? Get out. And give me a blessing. <laughs> Didn't we just win? Right? Didn't Moshe and Aaron just win on behalf of Yudhe Vave? And but you're, you're still in a position to make demands? Right? So, some things never change. Right? So the Egyptians, verse 33, somebody. And you bless Gam Oti, me also. So it's definitely, I get it. I get it. it. Somebody puts in there this lovely may you. I'm not saying that other places that may not be so, but I find it hard to believe. It's a clear imperative to, and bless me also. Right? This is the same way that in the struggle with Yaakov and the, I mean, yeah, Yaakov and the being, right? No nicety in there. Give, bless me. It may be urgent. 
Maybe Pharaoh's coming out of urgency and fear, right? Bless me. Do something to protect me. It's an exclamation point, which makes it very good. So, there, so remember, May, exclamation point, capital H. All of these are in the English. These are in the translations. These are the translators' um, interpretation. So we just always have to remember that every translation is an interpretation. All right, 30, uh, 33, somebody. The Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request. Thus they stripped the Egyptians. All right, so... The Egyptians are impatient to have them get out, right? Because they know this is just bad news. And they've been for a long time turning on Pharaoh, right? They, they for a long time wanted, for a while now, wanted, wanted this over, wanted them out. So they're being urged on. And so what happens? They took their dough that was in their kneading bowls and they quick wrap it up so it doesn't dry out, right? And they carry it out and... Um, they had done what Moses had asked them to do already and had borrowed, borrowed, <laughs> let me borrow a tissue. They borrowed from the Egyptians silver and gold and clothing, and God, as God had promised, disposed the Egyptians favorably toward them, so they leave with all the stuff that we're going to see them contributing, right, to the Mishkan in the desert. Yes? Okay. So let's, let's go on to 37. Me, yes, sir. This also makes me uncomfortable. The um, stereotypical, shrewd uh, Jewish, shady practices. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like stealing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's Sanctions, it's more like you know you have a war. And you win the war, spoils. you take the spoils. You Right, they've suffered for 430 years under Egyptian oppression. This is their due. This is, what, do we call, what is it called? Reparations. But it is a little strange. You imagine, okay, here's the slave going to the master and the master's wife and say, oh, by the way, could I have your gold and silver? Right. Well, given that the master that's is... That's why they put God in there. Reeling they, from right, otherwise what's happening. Not be believable. Right? The, they're like, take it. And take it and, and go. Take whatever you want and go. Um, but it's definitely plunder, Reuben. It's, it's definitely the spoils of war. Absolutely. 100%. Um, and, and we should just be really clear that that image is, is a much later image of the shady, greedy, money-hungry Jew. That is a much later issue. Right? Wouldn't have, this wouldn't have been written after we have that stereotype, would it? But people are Much later. This for 2,000 years. <laughs> so, and I'm sure not everybody projected back to things were at that time. Okay. And I was talking about this section yes, last night with someone who's very orthodox. And what they learned was the gold, the silver, the copper that the Jews took when they were leaving didn't belong to the Egyptians. It was what they had brought there to begin with, and they were taking. Of course, it of course, of course, of course. The rabbis have to do something with this. Reuben's right. We they borrowed it. Come on, right? 
Of course the rabbis are going to say, oh, this is what came down with Jacob. Originally, it was always theirs. They were just taking it back. Where would Jacob in that group have gotten gold, silver, and copper? I'm sure they had lots of gold and silver and all of that when they came down. They didn't have a nation's worth, right? But you got to love the Jews. you got to love the rabbis. All right, third, because the rabbis don't like this. The, the rabbis feel like Reuben. Like, they don't like that. Okay, 37, somebody. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. Moreover, a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430th year to the very day, all the ranks of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is the Lord's all right, so now we begin to get the connection of this to the ritual of Pesach, right? Um, so they journey from Ramses to, Ramses to Sukkot, um, 600,000. Again, all of these numbers we have to take, you know, as mythic numbers. Um, some folks are starting to translate thousand here, LF, not as thousand. LF can also be a unit, like a clan or a military unit. So 600 units sound is way more plausible even in the mythic imagination than 600,000, right? Um, it, it says here, if it was 600,000 men aside with from, women and children, it would have been 2 million. That's right. Which is many more people than could have lived there. Right. And left simultaneously. Or crossed anything at the same time, right? Yeah, so we're, we're going to get there. Um, so uh, this is one of Rabbi Rubin's fam- favorite lines of Torah at verse 38, that a mixed multitude, an Erev Rav, went up with them. And what Rabbi Rubin loves to point out um, is that we were never one group, right, that was somehow exclusively something. From the very inception, from the very beginning, we were an Erev Rav. We were a mixed group. This is who we've always been. That the Jewish people became the Jewish people who stood at Sinai was a mixed group. We became the Jewish people, right? And so um, lots of us like to, to point to this to say, and there's always a way to bring those who want to be part of the Jewish people into the covenant of the Jewish people. Is Erev Rav the source of riffraff? Yes. I yes. Yes. Erev Rav. Yeah. Riffraff. So for the rabbis, of course, they want to say that this was the group that instigated the whole business of the calf. We hung out with some not-so-nice people, and we brought them with us, and they caused us trouble. But, uh, but some of us really love to point out that, uh, that we, we made ourselves a people at Sinai. It isn't racial. It isn't genetic. It isn't, right, that it, we became a people when we entered the covenant, and that we can still always welcome people into the people Israel through um, entrance into the covenant. What were the mixes made out of? Canaanites and any... Whoever was there. there. You know, war happens all over that region. 
Wherever Egypt won a war, they had captives that they brought in as slaves. In a way, it's, it's almost like a very American kind of idea in the sense that the United States, people who live in the United States don't share nationhood with everybody else in the United States. They share an allegiance to a common set of ideas which defines Americans. That's right. And we're going to see in a minute what that means. You know, that just because you're in America doesn't mean you're American. Right? There has to be a process by which you're welcome here and you're protected by our laws as long as you're here. But, but you're not a citizen until, right? Exactly. Exactly right. And we're going to see that here exactly. So um, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt, could not delay, nor they prepared any breakfast. What? When you have dough and you want to have it rise and become leavened, you need to add to it sourdough, right? You have to add something that's going to help it do that. So what we're told here is that they didn't. They, they hadn't reached that stage of the process when they started leaving, and therefore they had this other stuff, My. right? <laughs> and that's not leavened. Um, interestingly enough, there are sacrifices where we're told that you can't bring anything leavened with the sacrifice. There's already before this an understanding that leavened cakes already mean something, right? That they are... They are prohibited from certain sacrifices. We're, we're not clear. Either in pagan rites, they meant something, and so y'all can't bring them with your sacrifices. Um, possibly it represents you know, this kind of luxury, this you know, puffed upness is what the rabbis like to say, but that doesn't make a lot of sense since you're going to bring the best of your animals. Why wouldn't you bring the best of your cakes as well? So that's not, you know... So much an argument. Um, but we do know that, uh, as um, Mickey mentioned, that in the ancient Near East, it, the festival of the new grain would have meant you ate only of the new grain when you were celebrating that crop, the harvest in the spring of the wheat. You ate only of that year's crop. What that meant was you didn't have any sourdough. You didn't have any starter to, or yeast or whatever it was to add to make leavened whatever. So most likely in the region it had been a practice for some time at the festival of the new grain to eat only the new grain, only unleavened uh, stuff. But this is the Israelite reconstruction of that practice. Now there becomes an Israelite historical layer to that practice that reconstructs that whole idea of this spring grain business. Yes? Okay. 40? The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430th year, to the very day, all ranks of Yudhei Bavhei departed from the land of Egypt. That was for Yudhei Bavhei. Night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night, one of vigil for all of the children of Israel throughout the ages. So this is a lovely, a lovely parallel, right? That uh, as horrifying and terrifying as all of it is, that that God is keeping vigil, 
because God has already set that as the night of redemption, right? That's the night it's going to happen. And God keeps vigil that night over the houses of those who have placed the blood on the door. And the Israelites will keep it as a night of vigil for all time, right? So that we participate in that vigil every year at that night. So... um, as my commentator says that, you know, it's a night ever under protection from malevolent beings, um, which is in stark contrast to the Middle Ages when, of course, Jews that night was a night of terror because of the blood libel, saying that Jews use Christian babies' blood to make matzah and churches would whip up the crowd into a frenzy and there was often a pogrom um, on the night of... Mm-hmm. Yes. In the Warsaw Ghetto, the first night of Pesach was the night of the attack and the uprising. So, continued into modern times. Yes. Yes. And uh, the Yad Chazakah, right? The strong, the, the strength of the uprising, knowing that this is... I, I will And we will read it next week. Okay. Um, so it is, a, it is a night that was for us a night of terror, a night of protection from terror. In the Middle Ages, it becomes a night of, of terror once again for the Jews. And then in Warsaw, a night again of, of strength. And so it's a, and my, you know, my, my father died the sec, night of Second Seder. So for me, it is always and I'd being very aware that the destroyer was, the angel of death was in my, my life that, that night. So um, let's look at verse 43. This goes exactly back to what we were just talking about, right? That the, the only people, and it's, it's a little misstated in terms of, it's not just who may eat of it, it's who's obligated to eat of it. Who's excused from, from having to do this is anyone who does not identify with the Jewish people. And with the covenant of the Jewish people, and well, that covenant hasn't happened yet, but in terms of being part of the Jewish people, of course, this is written after the covenant, but whatever. Um, um, So how do they demonstrate that? Interestingly, what I love about this is it's not about their status. It isn't your slaves don't have to eat it because they're not really Israelites, right? The slave is part of your household if 
You've circumcised them and made them part of the people of Israel. But folks who are living with you, who do not identify with your people, with your story, they're not obligated to eat this. They, they can do something else. But um, anyone who's going to consider themselves as part of this n- needs to really do that. Right? This is not just a, okay, this week, this year I'm going to try it. Right? It's, it's circumcision. It's permanent. It is, it is identification with the people, and then everybody's equal among the people. The stranger and the Israelite are absolutely equal and may participate equally. The slave, everybody, as long as they are part of, of this people. Carol? And so we may not want to go here. Okay. The one that killed his father? The one that killed his father, and that's nearby. And, and recently I read an article about um, they were these Hispanic men who went looking for blacks to shoot um, nearby, someplace like Riverside or wherever it was. And, and it was so disturbing to me. And they're, they're looking to rid that town of black people. And I know I sound like, wow, that, that, how can that be? But I still feel like, wow, how can that be? And so what more can we do? What more can we do to to rid the world of anti-Semitism, to rid the world of prejudice? What what can we do that, uh, I mean, my son knows kids his age who have parents who were, were neo-Nazis. Here. Right. So it is... It's real. It's here. It's what can we do? And right. they believe this God. Right. So I think we continue to do what we do. I mean, we, I mean, I think what I hear you saying is... I mean, it's a, it's a rhetorical question, right? It's what I hear you expressing is the frustration that there isn't sometimes very much we can do. What we can do is create a world of tolerance. What we can do is create a world of less need and less pain and less hopelessness and less despair so that people don't need to act out of that and put it somewhere else and hurt somebody else because their life as they project forward is is meaningless or hopeless or I mean that's what our story is about is moving out of hopelessness into the steps that we have to take to create a society based on equity and justice and compassion and that's what we can continue to do is to try to build that here and abroad that's Okay, but is it equity? Because here we're talking about, you know, you got to be like us, you got to be circumcised. Wait, 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 wait. To eat this, that's all. To eat this sacrifice, you're only obligated to do this if you are Israelite. This has nothing to do with whether you're better or worse or equal. Just if you want to eat it. You are only obligated to eat it if you identify as an Israelite. That's all. So mourners are, are exempted from work because they're mourners. Doesn't mean they're better, different, less. Other, I mean, they are different. They're not better or work, right? They're, they're, in a, they're just in a different category, and so there are things that apply or don't apply based on that category. I think, actually, this is a text that absolutely speaks to equity. No matter what your rank, if you're a slave, if you're anything, you 
if you identify as part of the people of Israel, are obligated to eat the sacrifice. Everybody. Right? So it's just a, it's a question of category here. And they recognize disparity in Torah times. That, that there's disparity of social rank and of wealth, all of that. I'm not trying to get around that. But here, this is one of the equalizers, which is what I love about Seder and what I love about Pesach, is that it's, it's, a, it's the great equalizer. Everybody went out. And everybody's obligated to eat. Margo, then Laura. Uh, um, in terms of um, circumcising slaves, uh, I wonder, is this one way of increasing our numbers? Do they become permanently um, Jewish, Israelites? In this case, yeah, they were part of the household. You know, they were they were part of the house. And that's all it took to become at this point. <laughs> that's all. Yes, Laura. You know, there's so many of those details I don't know, and I, I don't know that we know. I would have to look it up. Um, my guess is the reality of life was, you know, a slave didn't have all that much, say, although a lot of slaves were indentured Hebrews, who I'd imagine, you know, like, you know, so indentured servitude, my guess is you, you had some choice about that. But I'm sure, you know, slaves, you know, in, in every society, had less power, less control over their destinies, absolutely. Um, and you know, we were talking about satyrs always, you know, we were freed from slavery, but we then had slaves. <laughs> we were freed from slavery, we had slaves. Yes, so <laughs> I, th- I, think, <laughs> I think what's really important to remember is that slavery was understood as an economic absolute in the ancient world. It was an absolute. It, it was an absolute. And it was the last recourse often when you owed so much money. Now we have bankruptcy. It wasn't bankruptcy, right? You weren't protected by a corporate. You're like, I mean, you, you were done. You lost everything. What do you do? So often you sold yourself into indenture or your children into indentured servitude. Look in lots of places in this world today. What do they do when they've lost everything or have nothing? They sell their children into indentured servitude. So that was, that was the reality. Because what's the alternative? It wasn't any prettier, right? As much as we hate the word slavery and all that brings up for us, without indentured servitude, what happens? You starve. Therefore, you, I mean, and, and I'm not in any way, you know me, defending the, the institution of slavery. <laughs> Good, I'm glad that's a given. I, having said that, um, given that it was a reality, an absolute economic reality of the ancient world, um, you were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, you will not oppress your slave. Therefore, you will not mistreat your slave. If you marry her because you want to have a child, 
with her and then you take another wife and you don't like her anymore, 13-year-old slave girl, you may not put her out, right? You, so, and, and the law of every seven years, you know, now we're going to rethink the whole system and level the playing field. You may, not do, you may not mistreat your slaves. You were slaves in the land of Egypt. And it is very important to remember that this is, in, from everything I've read and studied, um, very different from the institution of slavery as we knew it in this country. Never have, has there been <laughs> as horrifying a system of slavery as there was in this country um, in terms of what that meant. You know, ownership of people and what was done to them was just, I mean, not that it was ever probably fantastic to be a slave, um, but in this country it was particularly uh, horrible. I'm struck by the whole offering and you shall eat it part of this. Tell me. Which we passed over. <laughs> passed yes. over. <laughs> this whole thing, it, when we think about sacrifice, we think about giving something, right, to somebody else. But this is about us participating and eating. Always sacrifice yeah, with us very, eating. It's, it's a very mutual kind of a thing. And yet I think because of English, because korban is normally translated as sacrifice, and the Christian idea of sacrifice, we think of sacrifice as giving something up. This was who's going to get to eat the lamb, not who's going to give it up. Right. So in some cases, it was a giving up in terms of the yeah. olah. In, in, the, in the case of the Holocaust, everything was burned, right? So that means you don't get the use of it. You give over the use of it to God and for God to enjoy the whole thing. Um, in other cases, you give up part of it to the priesthood, right? But in every case, the sense of korban is sacrifice is just such a horrible translation. Korban is, fr is from the root karov, to come close. So when you brought an animal for offering, you were offering to eat with God. You were bringing a meal to eat with God in order to come close to God. So um, it is in this case, um, in remembrance, because of course there's no shrine. They're not talking about doing this at a shrine. They're not talking about doing this at the temple. Um, they're talking about doing this in your home. This is to come close to each other. To bring the community close together in remembrance of what God did for them. What I find fantastic about this story that we also don't talk about a lot is it the is it the first korban pesach, the first eating of this paschal lamb was done when before before the event. Do this as a remembrance. They haven't gone out yet. <laughs> They're doing it as a remembrance of something that hasn't happened yet. They have to eat the Paschal Lamb of freedom while they're slaves. That's intense. Not on the other side. But while they're still living the reality that seems like it will never change. The uprising in the Varsa ghetto is... When it seems this will last forever and there's no way to defeat the Nazis, we are called to act into a new 
vision of what is possible. And that is what helps it come to be. Um, since this obviously predates the priestly period, um, doesn't the, and once you had the priestly period, when, when they did the sacrifice, there was something left for the priests to eat because that was the way they supported themselves, among other things. But doesn't this command for the whole community to eat essentially invest every adult partaking with the priestly role? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, y yes, and it's different with the priests because they got a portion of certain sacrifices. Certain sacrifices were still for the Israelites to eat on their own. But yes, that, I love that also about the Pesach <coughs> ritual is that it's done by the clan, you know, by the family, for the family, with the family, however we define family. And I don't mean nuclear family sitting around the dining room table. Really, it means, you know, you're close. It would mean us eating a lamb together in, the, in this room every Pesach. <gasps> Wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> <laughs> and for the vegetarians among us, thank you, Mickey. The Paschal yam. There's reconstructing and there's reconstructing. Why do you think Passover has become so incredibly important? I mean, it is the most celebrated of all holidays among Jews. Jews who do nothing else. I think well, because is it this? It, it, it is done in it is done by us for us in our homes with our loved ones, and we don't have to go anywhere and listen to anybody give us a long sermon on something we don't really care about or like you know melodies we don't know. Right? It's 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 our ritual around our table about, and I think there is who who was it who had that beautiful saying that um, on Pesach we eat history. I think there's something about eating our history that is compelling in a way that liturgy in the synagogue just isn't. Um, I think we need both. Um, but, uh, but, but there's something very different about you know, telling the, the mythic story that we're supposed to relive, the meanings of which we're supposed to internalize again, committing ourselves once again to creating a world where this doesn't happen, you know, where oppression and suffering and all that doesn't happen, and we work actively against that because we were slaves. We drive our Lexuses and live in our lovely homes, right? We are to eat the bread of affliction to remember and the maror to remember. And there's a power about that while we're reclining as free people. There's all these juxtapositions and all of these tensions and all of these opposites that like all come together. The bread of affliction is also the bread of our liberation. Which is it? Is it the bread of affliction? Is it the bread of lechem oni? The bread of the poor? Or is it the, the bread of our freedom? Pesach is so unequivocally both and that we are living in luxury, we are free, we affirm that, and we eat the maror, you know, and the, the matzah to remember that that wasn't always so. And, uh, and so I think there's, there's a power to that that just can't be, can't be you know, beat or, or duplicated. Blanche? Hope. Again, it's hope. I'm always touched that our whole family wants to be together on Passover. 
and they managed to come. <laughs> they've written plays that they've acted out, and they want us to do it every year. There's something about the story that has such an appeal. So it's there. It's there from the 12-year-olds to the 80-year-olds. The power of telling our story, right? The, uh, the culture that we came out of, Eastern the Ashkenazi Jews, uh, if you could possibly come home for Pesach, you did. And no matter where you were, you, know, you didn't have <coughs> any other holiday. If uh, the family could afford to get you a pair of shoes, it would be for Pesach, yeah. not for Rosh Hashanah. It's also interesting, it's the one holiday where a lot of non-Jews often participate and yes. find a Seder. A se find a Seder and find, you know, there's little else that we do as Jews that non-Jews can say, oh gee, I really like that, you know. <laughs> I really like fire services. Well, because frankly, they can go to church to get a lot of Right. What we there, do there at other times. There's something different about being in the home and having this elaborate. Which, don't you know a lot of Jews who go someplace for Christmas Eve or you know like I mean, you know who because it's in the home and it's this amazing you know like way to to bring that to life in a much different way when it when it's at home. Sarah, a variation on the hope thing and the turning affliction into pleasure. In my husband's uh, Ashkenazi uh, Russian family, there is a candy that's made out of matzah. It's, they're called ingberlach. Ingber means ginger. And they take matzah and break it up and put ginger and honey. And, and it becomes very sticky. And you better see the dentist afterwards. But um, it's... Uh, it was a tradition in his family, and I have a picture of my husband when he was in better shape, uh, making it with our little granddaughter of ours. You roll it out, cut it up. So that admixture of the bread of affliction yeah. with ginger and honey, Sweet. heading towards Eretz Zvat Chalavudvash, heading towards right. a land flowing with milk and honey, mm -hmm. our affliction, right, and we carry that with us, to the land of milk and honey. You eat it at the end of the Seder. Ah, of course. Of course. The afikomen, right? The dessert. The afikomen that we eat at the end of the meal. Also, what I love about that is what do we? what is the afikomen? It is the middle matzah that has been split off. So all that we have split off because of our suffering, all that we have split off personally because of our own oppression, all of the ways that there's a part of us we split off and don't want to look at. Right? We're asked before the Seder concludes, before we can say the final anything and eat that candy, we have to bring in and take back in that which we have split off. Then we can conclude our Seder. So there's also, remember, special Torah readings for the festival. So we read appropriate texts from Torah on the holiday. This is in the cycle of the reading.
So, so we have the, the annual, you know, the annual cycle of where things fall, and then they are taken out again and read at the appropriate festival. All right. This is chronological history. This is right, we're reading chronologically right now, right? And then, um, but then we excerpt, you know, we go back and read parts that are applicable to the festival on the festival. Most of us are not, I hate to say it, in shul on Passover, so we don't really connect reading Torah. I mean, we read it from the Haggadah, obviously, um, but we also read from Torah on Pesach morning, on Yontif, the appropriate passages. And where did the hiding of the middle come in? Where did the what? The hiding the Africa. Yeah, hiding it. Where did that come in to Give the kids something to do. I'm not sure where the minhag, I'm not sure where the minhag originates. I don't know where I would have to look up where the it's custom. A, it's a custom. It's a custom. It's, it's a custom. not right. law. It's not. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I mean, I think everything actually at the seder is done in order to have the children ask why. You do a bunch of bizarre stuff in order that the children ask why, so that you can answer. This is what was done for me, and so let's go there. Forty-three. Did we do that already? Yes. yes, we did already. So go to 50. And all the Israelites did so, as Adonai had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That very day Adonai freed the Israelites from the land of Egypt, troop by troop. Go on. Adonai spoke further to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me every male firstborn, human and beast, the first male issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you went free from Egypt, the house of bondage, how Adonai freed you from it with a mighty hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. You go free on this day in the month of Abib. So when Adonai has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which was sworn to your fathers to be given to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall observe in this month the following practice. Go on. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival about a nine. Throughout the seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be found with you, and no leaven shall be found in all your territory. And you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what Adonai did for me when I went free from Egypt. And this shall serve you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, in order that the teaching of Adonai may be in your mouth, that with a mighty hand Adonai freed you from Egypt. You shall keep this institution at a set time from year to year. So seven-day festival of matzot, of the unleavened bread. Right? What's not here is the eighth day of Pesach. So we have the grain, the Chag Matzot, the festival of the grain, a seven-day festival, and we have the tradition of Pesach, the lambing, the sacrifice and the eating of the Paschal lamb. Right? So we have the agricultural tradition of Canaan, and we have the semi-nomadic pastoralist people with their flocks and herds who do the lambing business in the spring. Those 
when Israelite culture comes to take over in the region of Canaan, have to come together. You have to give the people, if they're going to buy into this new Israelite business, you've got to give them both of their festivals in order to reconstruct their traditions in this new Israelite packaging and make that meaningful to them. You have to take their observances and their festivals and reconstruct them with this new historical understanding right? and what it means to be in covenant um, and, and adopt this history. Because for Canaanites, this wouldn't have been their history. This is set in the time before they leave. Correct. This is Tefillin. Very nice, Reuben. So this is the one of the texts that are found in the Tefillin. If you look at the Tefillin, if you open Tefillin, um, I brought one to the board meeting last night to show them. If you look at the Tefillin on the box, there are four compartments. In which are the four texts that we are told to put in the tefillin? So, and it's a very old uh, tradition. We know from at least 200 BCE, we know they were already physical things that were put on the hand and on the head. Probably a lot older than that. But we know for sure, 200 years BCE, they were taking it literally and putting these words on their hand and on their foreheads. Um, and this text, I was saying last night that we don't usually think of this as one of the texts that go with the tefillin. What we think about is like Shema, Ve'ahavta, loving God, being one with God, right? The text that you use when you wrap the, the leather around your males, of course, their left, you know, ring finger is, you know, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness. And you're marrying God. Every time you put on the, the tefillin, you marry God, right? It's this remembrance of our covenant, a remembrance of this, this, this union. We don't often, I don't think, think of tefillin as the Yad Chazakah, right? The, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm that reached into oppression and slavery that gave the people who were oppressed the courage to slay a god of Egypt and advertise it on the doorpost in the Warsaw Ghetto to stand up when for all intents and purposes you knew it was suicide on some level. Because there's no way you're going to overturn the Nazis tomorrow. There's every reason to believe the Israelites were like, Really? We're going to overthrow Pharaoh tomorrow. But you get to a point where you're ready to take whatever step is necessary. That kind of courage, that kind of acting in the face of what seems like absolutely overwhelmingly impossible changes, that is also what the tefillin comes to honor and sanctify and help us remember. Is that it is that act of courage it is that act of acting as if when it seems like there's no possibility for a, a world at peace, a world of justice, a world where we don't kill each other because of skin color or any other nonsense. It is that kind of courage that is called for. That is what opens up new pathways that aren't there until we do. The sea doesn't open until we do these things, until we move forward. Along those lines. The, uh, <clears throat> the first born is uh, dedicated to 
So, from its inception, um, the firstborn belong to God. They are consecrated to God, meaning you don't get them, God does, right? So, the firstborn of all of Israel were meant to serve, but of course, it's kind of like the Israeli army um, and the ultra-Orthodox. We say the ultra-Orthodox should have to serve, and the Israeli army says, really, we don't want them. Thank you very much. We can't use them. So, um, so it is with the firstborn of Israel belong to God, and God says, you know what, give me the Levites. Right? Like, let's have a group who really gets it and really understands. Probably, originally, the firstborn were the ones who brought offerings on behalf of the family to the local shrine. Right? It would have been the firstborn who was the sacral member of the household who made those offerings. And later, the Levites take their place. But because the firstborn still belongs to God, you had to do a pidyon haben. You had to redeem the fir- your firstborn there's a Levite standing in for your firstborn. So you have to give money to redeem your firstborn from service. Will you teenagers get your money back? No. <laughs> um, and uh, there's a beautiful tradition right now um, that some people are engaging in. I did two in um, Minnesota that were just beautiful where um, this idea of the firstborn you know, and, and redemption of the firstborn wasn't as meaningful giving you know, coins to tzedakah, which is what's traditionally been done. You give money and, you know, and then you, get, you put your child on a plate and you money and you get the child and the, the tzedakah gets the money. It's lovely. But I had um, two families who um, took a lot of time to think about um, what they wanted to redeem their child from. And they had a whole ritual where um, they said out loud, that they wanted to redeem their child from all of the things that they were going to put on their child. <laughs> they wanted to redeem their child from all of the things that were their expectations, that were, came out of their own brokenness and their own longings and their own emptiness and their own disappointments so that this child could live in to their own gifts and their own dreams and that they truly wanted to redeem their child from all of the things that, as their firstborn, it would be carrying out of their own pain. Um, and out of what was missing. It was just, I mean, we, we were all sobbing. It was like, it was gorgeous. It was just gorgeous. Um, so we are coming on Monday to the celebration of, or the commemoration, right, of uh, the life of and the work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and so here we have a quote from King talking about Um, Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. And uh, our commentator, Rav Josh, says, uh, quotes our... Uh, Parsha about slaughtering this lamb at the bottom of the first page going on to the second page that everybody's to take this lamb and they have to slay it right at twilight in Egypt an act of great risk given that the lamb was going to grow into something that became a, as an adult was a symbol of a god of Egypt and uh, so here we have an early midrash. Somebody reads, So It Was With Israel. So it was with Israel. Yeah. 
but they did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, said the Holy One, blessed be God, to Moses. As long as the Israelites worship the Egyptian gods, they shall be redeemed. Go and tell them to forsake their every ways and repudiate idolatry, as it is written. Draw out and take you. That is to say, withdraw your hands from idolatry and take you a lamb and slaughter thereby the gods of Egypt and make Passover. So you must come draw yourself out of the ways that you have become accustomed to. The learned helplessness, the cynicism, the despair, the feeling like it can never change. We can't really do anything. You have to come out of that and then do something else. Take your hand, reach out your hand and take for yourself a God of Egypt. Take that reality. Take that belief that that's the way it's always going to be and you must slaughter it. You have to kill it right there. That is what is going to open up the path to redemption. Turn to the next page. In the middle of that paragraph of the commentary, first they had to procure the lamb, lead it through the streets without fear of Egyptian reaction. Second, to slaughter it family by family in groups. And finally, they had to sprinkle its blood on the doorpost for every Egyptian passerby to see, braving the vengeance of their former persecutors. Their fulfillment of every detail of this rite would be a proof of their complete faith in God. In the words of the sages, the blood would be a token to you and not to others. The blood went on the doorpost, not as a sign to somebody else, but as a sign to the Israelites that they're all in. That they will risk repercussions. That they will risk the ultimate cost of what acting into a new reality is going to possibly mean. This, our commentary here is coming to say, if you look at the back page, is what the life of Dr. King was about. What all true visionary leadership is about, about embodying that move. When Dr. King spoke about the drum major instinct, he challenged us to think about when we will take the plunge and represent the values that can change society and the world. Similar to the way in which God's command of the Korban Pesach challenges the Israelites to speak out about the values they are rejecting in Egyptian society, we have the responsibility to teach our children about how they can be upstanders and represent the values we want to teach them, even when our children face others that may want to reject those values. As we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, may we help our children see what it means to be drum majors for God Torah and the Jewish people and represent the values that will change them and change the world.